0: please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. It's good to be with you tonight as we walk through, or excuse me, continue our series in what is Reformation theology. What is Reformation theology? And if you have been journeying along with us over the last couple of months, uh, you know, we have started with the acronym now of TULIP. And so we started with Jim Briggs on December 17th, 18th, somewhere around there. Um, You know, Jim walked us through the uh, total depravity and helping us to understand that um, all of us fall short of the glory of God, that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one, And Jim was crystal clear in the biblical doctrine of total depravity. And then last Sunday, Grant walked us through irresistible grace, the I in the acronym of TULIP, irresistible grace. And he did a great job of explaining for us God's irresistible call, his effectual call when he brings men and women to Christ, to saving faith. And tonight, I have the privilege of walking through unconditional election. Unconditional election. Before we get started, I want to start off with a disclaimer but before we move any further. Unconditional election is one of the probably most misunderstood and highly debated biblical doctrines out there. Now, Of course, there's a lot of doctrines that people don't agree with and disagree with. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to unconditional election, it is a very, it's a major doctrine To try to unpack. I'd like to back up for you in just very briefly about probably 15, 16 years ago or probably later than that when Kenny Jones was just a young strapping good-looking seminarian and some things haven't changed and um and so with that um but in all seriousness um it was it was in my early days at seminary where a gracious man of God, a, a faithful man of God, took me and a bunch of other guys and taught us the doctrines of grace, walked us graciously through them, and he did. We did it over the course of about a, about a year, a year and a half. And I remember that when it came to the U in Tulip, unconditional election, if there was one person who ran up against a brick wall, it was Kenny Jones. I didn't like it, I didn't like the way it sounded, I thought it was wrong, and you name it. And the great thing about being in that context with fellow seminary uh, you know, comrades that I was in there with and for us to be able to work with uh, this guy, we were able to just go back and forth in a good godly way, have a good banter of what does this doctrine mean? Help me explain it. Show me again what you said in John six. Show me again what you said in Romans chapter nine. And then I can remember it like it was yesterday. And in fact, I was even looking at my Bible that I have, that I've had probably the longest Bible I've I've owned that is each falling apart. It's like a sacred heirloom now to me. I'm afraid to take it out of the house because I don't want it to fall apart. Maybe some of you have a Bible like that. But anyway, I remember in my quiet time when I was going through the book of Romans, just me and the Lord, and it was there in Romans chapter 4 of all places that all of a sudden things began to connect. I began to see the biblical doctrine of election. I began to see words like choose, predestined, called, and words like that that are synonymous, excuse me, synonymous, synonymous, excuse me, with the term election. And it began to make sense to me, all by the Spirit of God working in my heart. And so I say all that to humbly come before you tonight because this is not an easy doctrine to unpack. This isn't. And I say it humbly to you all, and those who are even watching online, or maybe we'll be listening to this later in the weeks and maybe even years to come, that we have to approach this with grace. We have to touch it with, with care and walk with, through it with very much care and love and the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus. Because there are some of you in here tonight, like me, that have understood it, affirmed it for a long time. There's some in here that maybe have never even heard it before. And there are some in here that understand it, heard it, heard it before preached, maybe explained in a setting like this, but you still got questions, you're still wrestling with it, and that's okay, that's okay. And so my prayer tonight is that as we unpack unconditional election, that we will approach it with grace, because Reformed theology can carry a bad name because we are the Bible guys, we're the Bible women. We know what's right, and we can shake our hands and fingers at people's faces and say, no, you're wrong because you don't affirm this, and you and shake your, our fist at people, getting so mad and passionate about it. But the reality is this. Like you, like me, we had to have an on-ramp. We had to get there eventually. And just like any good educator, any good education, takes you time to get there, It takes you time to learn it. You know, one great thing about my dad was that he could tinker with just anything, and especially with motors. I love to just watch my dad, just even though he wasn't a mechanic, you could just say something to him and he could spout out something, hey, my sound, the car's making this sound. And he could just go, oh, it's a carburetor. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. Without even missing a beat. And sure enough, when we would lift open the hood, there was the issue at hand but then he would take time to help me replace that part. Now granted, I did install a water pump wrong one time, and water spewed everywhere (laughs) and blew out the side, but that's okay, that's okay. I reinstalled it and we got there. But anyway, all that to say, I I wanna start off this, this evening in an environment of grace, because I understand, even as Grant and I were talking about it this week, you have to treat this doctrine with a lot of love and a lot of grace. So, before we move any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And one thing I'm gonna bring, I just prayed tonight for, is our country. I was talking to Jim and JP just a moment ago. I haven't looked on the news today, but I understand that there's something going on. Correct me, Jim, in Iran, if I'm not mistaken and so with our country, and so, um, not to bring an alarm, but I think there's, there's just been some activity over there, so we need to pray for wisdom for our president, members of Congress, um, and for things that are taking place in the Middle East, so don't look on your phones, just trust me, okay, I know I see some of you looking down, okay, all right, I'm gonna be like a teacher, yeah, I see you, yep, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it in a basket, and you can get it after class, so, um, but anyway, but let's go to the Lord in prayer in all seriousness and pray as we are supposed to for our government leaders. Father God, we come to you tonight grateful for the grace you've given to us and we are grateful, Lord, of the mercy you have extended to us even now. Father, the writer in Lamentations chapter three says that your mercies are new every morning and Father, they are new from the moment we hit our feet this morning off the bed to even now at this moment. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you, Lord, for your word that is sufficient. And Lord, how we know that it speaks to all things concerning life and the things in this life. Father, I pray that as we walk through this doctrine, teach us, grow us. Father, help us to see what your word says and how there's no way to escape it that the Bible teaches on election. So Father, show us through your word what you have to say about your gracious hand of mercy that is extended to us through the gift of election to save us. Father, we do pray for President Biden. We do pray for those in Congress. And for um, we ask for wisdom tonight for them. We ask that, God, you will just show them exactly what to do. And, uh, Father, that your hand will guide. And, we all, Lord, we also pray for the men and, and women who are serving um, in the armed services, Lord. Um, some of us in this place maybe have loved ones, brothers and sisters and children and grandchildren that may be serving in, in the armed forces. And so Lord, we pray for their protection as well. And thank you for their sacrifice to this country. Father, we love you and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So I want to start off with a word that we are all familiar of. Now we are talking about unconditional election, but I want us to break down for a moment This word, election. And I'm going to give us an example here as we we unpack this term. When you think about the word of election, for us as American citizens, we like this term. The reason why is because due to our constitution and living in a democratic republic, we have the right and the privilege to go to vote every two years. We know that. And when we go to the ballot box, we are looking at men and women who are trying to get excuse me get elected into those offices. From mayor to governor to president to Congress, you name it, and all the elected positions in between, we have the opportunity to go and to vote. Now, what we do when we do go to the ballot box is we see the candidates, we research the candidates, but here's the thing we do. When you look at them, you're, you're looking at what they believe and what they stand for. And so you say, I'm going to vote for that man or that woman for that position, whatever it may be in government. We've been doing that since the founding of our great nation. Now, here's something that we need to see. Oxford Dictionary defines election as a formal and organized choice by a vote of a person for a political office Or other position and again like I said we do this by looking at the candidates beliefs their core set of convictions but the definition that we are familiar with and just how the great scholars in Oxford put it into a dictionary for us but there's a word that is a line of demarcation when you look at democracy with election versus when we look at it with the biblical definition of election and it all comes down to a word that you know well. I have so much better handwriting than Gramp. (laughs) Choice, choice. Again, going back to our example, we have a choice. We can vote for two candidates for that office but the reason why I call it that word choice is because the Bible is clear. There is a divine balance that we see in Scripture where there is God's sovereignty over everything, including salvation, but there's also human responsibility. This morning when we were walking through Exodus together, I read to you Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, where it says that the lot is cast into the lap, but the Lord determines its Decision, or every decision is from the Lord, excuse me. But the reality is, is what we find in Scripture, as though God is sovereign over everything, including salvation, this word right here is something that we as believers need to understand. Again, going back to that balance of human responsibility and God's sovereignty, we need to know that we are responsible for our actions. We are responsible for our words, our deeds, our sinful sinful behavior. We can go in scripture many times and see that. Again, I I call out for example David in Psalm fifty-one. He confesses his sin, not anybody else's, but his sin for murder and adultery. We see in Isaiah chapter six when Isaiah is in the throne room, and he, be, he beholds the glory of God. Remember what he says? Well, was me. Isaiah is talking about his sin. He is the man with the unclean lips. And we make choices every single day in our life. We're going to make choices tonight, even now, and even tomorrow morning when we start a new day. But the doctrine of election, this word choice, is something that you have to define clearly and we have to approach it with very much grace and mercy. So let's jump right into it with the election. If you have a pen with you, you can write this down if you would like, but this is Kenny Jones's definition that I'm gonna to give to you. So this is next to gospel. And so, it's, just, it's a joke, okay, it's a joke. All right, lighten up. Here's Kenny's definition of election. God saves or chooses people into salvation based upon his own mercy and grace through Christ alone. Pretty good? Let me say it one more time. God saves or chooses people into salvation based upon his own mercy and grace through Christ alone. That's the definition of an election. Grant last Sunday introduced to us the canons of Dort, which they are the men that put together the acronym TULIP, where we get today for the unconditional election. They defined it as election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, he hath out of his mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had to fall into their own fault from their primitive state into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ, whom he from eternity appointed the mediator, the head of the elect, and the foundation of salvation. That's some fancy language. Let me tell you what R.C. defines it as, R.C. Sproul. It's our final destination, heaven or hell, is decided by God not only before we get there, but before we're even born. Sinclair Ferguson defines predestination, which again is one of the synonymous terms with election, as follows. It means deciding on a destiny, deciding on the destination of the journey, and doing that before it actually begins. Now with those definitions, it's hard for us and our human faculties and even even our, our own conventions to be able to think about a destiny or a determined end point before it's already began. Pretty hard to think about. Even when you go home, you know the road you gotta take to get home. But when you think about those definitions, before you're even on the road, the path is determined and the endpoint is determined. That's very humbling to grasp when you look at it. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a moment and look at this word choice in much more detail, and I want us to look, again, I want, us, I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. This is the call of Abram, before he is renamed Abraham, here in a couple of chapters later. But I want you to see, starting in verse 27, actually 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, or Haran. Verse 27, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Abraham fathered, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, the land of his kindred and the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and his Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Then, verse 31, Ter took Abraham his son and Lot his son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his sons Abraham's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Okay, look with me in verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The reason why I want you to start with Abraham is because he is a picture of faith. We see Abraham used all throughout scripture for us to see as a mental picture of what true saving faith looks like. But here's the thing I want you to look at. When you begin to go back, and as we did very briefly at the end of chapter 11, you see that there are descendants coming from Abram's father, Abraham's father, Terah. That's his father. He has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. But here's what I want you to see out of this. Abraham is chosen. Abraham is chosen to go from his kindred, leave everything behind, and to go and to be a blessing for descendants he has no idea about. At this point, when you look at Abraham's life, he's married, he's childless, but God is the one who chose Abraham, or excuse me, Abram, in the context of chapter 12. And the reason why I start with Abraham It's because, like I said a moment ago, he is the father of faith, the faith to believe in God. And that's exactly what we do here. We see later in Genesis chapter 15, if you'd flip over maybe a page in your Bible, I want you to look when the covenant is made with him. And there it says in verse 6, And he said to him, So shall your offspring be, in verse 6 in chapter 15, And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as Righteousness as righteousness. What Abraham is, is that he is showing us that the only way to be in the presence of God and to be saved is through faith alone. The example of Abraham is justification by faith alone. So the choice, okay, I lied, my handwriting is not good. Um, It's, my mom used to call it chicken scratch. Um, And it's probably true. But this choice has to come through justification by faith alone. That's the mechanism, is faith. And Abraham, the father of faith, was given faith by God, but he was chosen out of everybody to be the blessing of faith. To others, the example of faith. But I want you to see there again, again from this word choice or choose, God chose Abram. Chose Abram out of all of his brothers. Was there something special about him? No. In fact, we see Abraham was not a perfect guy, especially when he receives the call and he goes into Egypt. Remember, he even throws his own wife underneath the bus like a good husband. And so, that was a joke too. But see, Abraham is the example of faith. And we even see Paul write about it in Romans chapter four eleven. He received the sign of circumcision, that's Abraham, as a seal of the righteousness that he, had, that he had by faith while he was uncircumcised. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 says know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So faith is what saves, but it has to come by a choice. But what we see from this choice, it's not from Tira. It's not even going further back into Tira. The choice belongs to God. He alone is over all of this. And we see that with the example of, of Abraham. Now, I want you to turn your Bible, I want you to go right, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Because now that we know that Abraham was chosen by God, we need to see some details of why he was chosen. Now, here in the context of where we are in the letter to the, Ephes- to the Ephesian church, Abraham is not listed here. But remember, Abraham's faith is the same faith that we have. The example of faith. That's the connections I want you to see here from Genesis 12, even in Genesis 15, to where we are in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen along with me. So how do we get there? Starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let me stop there. So here in Ephesians, if you look with me starting in verse 3, Paul says three times, blessed. And what he's referring to here in this idea in the Greek, this blessing means to, be, to speak well, to be spoken well of. It means to celebrate by praising. The Greek word for this is where we get our word eulogy. And you know what a eulogy is. It's when you go to a funeral and they speak well of the deceased. That's what we see here with this blessing. But what Paul is talking about here is that these blessings that we receive, this rich inheritance that we receive, is all because of our faith in Christ. Now, the list is a mile long with the blessings that we receive with Christ. But I want to name a couple of for you. Number one, we are reconciled. We have peace with God because of Christ. We have wisdom We will one day inherit a mansion, i.e. heaven, like Jesus says in Matthew. But we also, in verse 4, have another blessing. We are elect. We have been called. We have been chosen by God all because of Christ. And there it is in verse 4. Because of being in Christ, faith was given to us. Faith that Abraham had and faith that here Paul is echoing in Ephesians 1 and even says in chapter 2, verse 8, that this is not of our own doing, but is a gift from God. But here's the reality. Something had to change in order for us to believe. The heart had to change. Like Abraham, like you, God had to intervene to change our affections, to change our heart so that we can even call on the name of the Lord and to be saved. The word there, chose there in verse 4, is the Greek word egoglomai, which means to select, elect, and choose. When you break down the root of the word ek, the first part, is out of. And lego, which means speaking to a conclusion, properly deliberate choice with a definite outcome. With a definite outcome. There's a purpose with God's election. And you see that here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. So let's ask some questions, because I know you're asking them. So why did he choose us? Why did he choose us? God, Yahweh, select, when, excuse me, when did he choose us? Sorry about that. When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. Jeff's just said it. Out of the mouth of, not babes, but Jeff. I call Jeff Jethro, you know, Moses' brother-in-law. He's been Jethro for a long time. So he got it right. Jethro got it right. But before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, as we know in the creation account, if you were to go back into Genesis chapter one, you see the Trinity at work in the creation account. You find the Holy Spirit that was hovering over the face of the waters, and there from God's own mouth, by the power and the work of the Spirit, you see creation take place. Here's the other thing we need to see. If you go back to Colossians 1 and that great Christological hymn, what you find also, and this goes back to the creation account, everything flows out of Christ. That beautiful Christological hymn shows us that even creation itself, everything, every spiritual blessing we have, all flows out and comes from from Christ. And so, before the foundation of the world, Before time began, before God spoke the earth into existence, he knew us. He knew us. Isn't that humbling to think about? He knew Kenny, again I'll pick on Jeff for a moment, he knew Jeff, and who people who have gone before us and who will come after us. Isn't that humbling to think about? David in Psalm 139 says this to the Lord, for you formed me in my inward parts, You knitted me all together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He says in verse 15, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and the book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when yet there was none of them to be had. So David acknowledges that before the foundation of the world, God knew who David was. He planned for David to be on this earth. So that's when he chose us, before the foundation of the world. Now, why did he do this? Why did God do this? Here's the good part. Look with me with this key word in verse four, the very end, in love. In love. If we're honest with ourselves, That is one of the deepest and most personal affections that we can feel. We all want to be loved. There's something special about being loved by someone. When someone says, I love you, and they mean it, it's something, it's really, it just warms your heart instantly. Think about a parent or a grandparent or a spouse or a dear friend or, or, or a relative. When they say that I love you, it warms your soul. And here, with the doctrine of election, the doctrine that is regard to salvation of your soul. Why did God do this? He did it in love. And there in verses one through five, we see the entire Trinity scene right here, here in the Godhead, and his own attribute of love was given to us in order to believe. That's why he chose us. 1 John four nineteen says it best. We love because he first loved us. It's exactly right. He had to do something, though, and out of his love, like Grant walked through last week with irresistible grace, he had to change your heart. He had to change our affections. Because what Paul does from Romans 1, chapter 18, all the way of Romans, chapter 3, verse 20, shows us that there is no one righteous, no one. All fall short of the glory of God. Whether Jew or Gentile, no one is perfect on the face of this earth. So something had to happen. Something had to initiate faith. And what we understand is that God is the one who changed our affections, changed our heart by his sheer and by his act of love towards us. That's the transaction we see here. And it all took place in love. Because remember what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, that the heart is deceptively wicked. Above all things, who can understand it? We are held captive to sin and unless the creator of the universe does something, or dead in our trespasses and sin, and we have to see that here, even in Ephesians chapter one, verses one through five. It's amazing to th- to read verse four to see that before the foundation of the world, the Lord knew out of His grace and mercy those to whom will have salvation. Again, I go back to those definitions, like I said just a moment ago, in defining election for us. The whole idea there, and you can see the, the, the vein that runs throughout each and every one of them, is that the Lord knows the destination in the end. It's very much similar to a parent doing something for one of their children. They don't even know it's happening. Yet out of love, they're preparing the way for them. That's what we see from God Almighty. And there we see the work of election taking place. There's a determination, there's a purpose to it all. Now I want you to go to your left, to Romans chapter eight. And I want you to see this, again, this continued theme of there's a purpose in the doctrine of election. Look with me, starting in verse 28. Very famous verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Here it is. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among the brothers. And those to whom he be predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You see the purpose of our election? The reason why I call that out for you to see is that This is not some grand idea that God thinks about while he is living and active. There's there's a purpose behind it. And we're gonna get to more details here in a minute, but I want you to see the connection there from Ephesians chapter one to here to Romans chapter eight because God's election has a purpose. And we see that and it all flows out of love. All right, let's go over to Romans chapter nine. Turn over one page. As Tommy Nelson says, the Mojave Desert of the Bible." Tommy Nelson has said this before. You know he's, he always says, "If your church is too big, just preach through Romans nine, and you'll have a split." Um, so can't be true on some accounts. Um, but anyway, but here in Romans nine, let's walk through this briefly. So Paul says in his opening statement, "I am the speaking truth in Christ. I'm not lying." My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, he's talking about Israel here, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs of the race, according to the flesh, as Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. What Paul does here in Romans chapter nine, verses one through five, in his opening statement, is he's going back to Romans chapter two. He's saying here that his Jewish brethren have missed the mark. They've been given everything they needed for salvation, the law, circumcision, everything, but they failed to grasp what true saving faith is all about. They have forgotten what justified Abraham. And so, Paul says, is the word of God lost? Is it void? As he says in verse 6, has it failed? And he says, no, it hasn't. And there in verses 6 through 13, even though the Jewish people have missed the mark, how they missed how their father Abraham was justified, Paul emphatically says the word of God did not fail. It is living and active, and it will never return void. And Abraham's time and even into now. And so, God, through this message of faith, the Redeemer God, who made Abraham believe, who saved Abraham, is showing us now who the true Israel is. And the marker is faith. The marker is faith. And then he says, it There. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse six, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac should her offspring be named. So then Paul has a brilliant mind He's starting to work upstream. He knows that his Jewish brothers are going to bring against him every argument known to man. And so there he takes their legs out right from underneath him and says, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, because you were descended from Abraham, that's what gets you into the kingdom of God. They're going back to biology. But the reality is, though they are descendants of Abraham, that doesn't mean they are saved. Even the Pharisees said this to Jesus in John chapter eight, verse 39, when they said, Abraham is our father. Yet they failed to see the faith that Abraham exercised. So then, he goes in, to a couple of examples. I love how Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit out of his grace, gives us examples for us to see what the Lord is teaching. Because then he goes to Isaac, there in verse seven. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Offspring. And there he goes into, but going back to Genesis, when Abram and Sarah are told they're going to have a son, even though she is childless at this point. So he goes again into the into election, the choosing of Isaac. Let me ask you a question. Was Isaac the only son of Abraham? No. no. Who was his other son? Ishmael. Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn. But the reason why I'm unpacking this in verses 7 through 10 is that what you see, even though Ishmael isn't named, you again see a choice Isaac. Isaac is the one who's going to carry on the promise and is going to be a conduit of the salvation of the Lord. He is going to continue on the covenant blessing that is going to be passed down. Isaac was chosen. He believed in God by the grace of God. He is the one who's the inheritant is going to inherit, inherit his father's faith. And that's going to go on to the next generation and the next generation after that. But then look, Paul goes into another example of children who are not even born yet. Look with me at verse 10. Not only so, he then goes into Rebekah. Had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, the whom are not yet born, and not done either good or bad, in order that God's good purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. But of him who calls. Here we see that the divine act of God, election being established. And there we see two children, not even born yet, and one is chosen to be the elect. Paul knows that Israel, the Jewish people, are no different than the Gentile. They all fall short. And this helps us to see something, ladies and gentlemen, that's clear. There's no special inheritance that the Israelites are going to receive because of the biology. Nothing special. The clear demarcation of what is special is faith faith is what saves faith is what saves that's what's going to gain access to the kingdom because there we are seeing these two children named starting there in verse 13 and when she I'm going to start back in verse 12 and when she was told here are the two children the older shall sure so excuse me will serve the younger as it is written Jacob I loved and Esau I hated there Paul is quoting Malachi chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 where it says I have Loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is these not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage a jackals of the desert. Paul does here a few things, and here's what I want you to see. He denies the doctrine of precedence, which means that one of these boys had the propensity to believe. No, they didn't. And we see that in Scripture. They didn't have something in their heart that would give them the ability to believe. They didn't want to be not special. The second thing we see, as Paul writes, is that they're twins. They're twins. They share a birth date. They share a mother. They share a dad. They share cultural influences, everything. Yet one is chosen, Jacob. Jacob, not Esau. And then I call this a cultural reversal takes place. When it says there in verse 13 that the older will serve the younger. Who gets the blessing? Jacob. We see that Esau begins to be the leader later in the book of Genesis, the Edomites. But there what we find is that Isaac, excuse me, Jacob is chosen. And that's what we see. He is chosen to be an act of God's salvation. And there again we see God's freedom and election. And it does go against human conventional thought. And that can be very hard to understand, and I I get that. But we see this in Scripture, that God has a purpose. And it's Jacob I loved, not Esau. then he goes on in verses 9 through 14, excuse me, 14 and 18. And Paul goes into a deeper aspect of divine election. And this is where we have to be humble and gracious in this journey. He goes into the example of Pharaoh. First, he quotes Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. When God passes Moses in the cleft on the rock, and he says there, that I will have mercy unto whom I have mercy, and I will show compassion to whom I have compassion. He says that there in verse 17. So there what we find is that out of all the attributes that God speaks over to Moses, there we see the doctrine of election unfold. And it is seen through God giving mercy on some and not on others. The second thing we see in verse 16, again, Paul is throwing out human will or human effort or works in the doctrine of election and to salvation. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. A person is justified by God alone calling them, not by works. There is no act that we can do to save ourselves. Paul says that in verse 16. Everything is based on the mercy of God, the gracious hand of God. And there, here's where the doctrine gets tough. It says in verse 17, for the scripture says that Pharaoh, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. My power in you. Here's reality that we need to see here. that so Paul, as he's talking about the doctrine of election, is also preaching the truth of the doctrine of heaven, but also hell. Pharaoh as is quoted there in Exodus chapter 9, 16, was raised up to be a part of Israel, leaving the promised land. But what we find is that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Now the question needs to be asked, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? God did not force anything to happen. Pharaoh, an unbeliever, had sin in his heart. He's doing this, he's mistreating the Israelites, putting them to slavery. He was a sinner with a sin in his heart. But God simply let sin, his sinful heart, do its thing and harden. Some theologians even say that God passed over his grace over Pharaoh, meaning he relinquished his grace over Pharaoh. And I believe that is an accurate statement as well. And again, that's where we have to treat this with grace and balance. Because what we see is the truth is that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And God allowed it to be hardened. But yet it was used a part of the salvation story of Israel. The Westminster Confession says of this the rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonour and to wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice this is hard to understand but this is what the bible teaches that some are predestined to receive and to the glory of God and to see it, and some are not. And that's what we see with the example of Pharaoh. But Paul, always ready to answer his debaters, next move, comes back with a question. Is God unjust? No, he's not unjust. No, he is not unjust. And then he moves in a little bit further. Is he not merciful? And he even says... There in verses 20 and 21, who are we to question God? Who are we to question God, our Creator? It's like when God says to Job, Were you there when I put the stars in the sky? Were you there when I put Orion and the Pleiades into the sky? The same thing that Paul says here at the end of chapter 9. Because God, in His mercy and His justice, has every right to send everyone to hell. But what we see is that he extended grace to us, again, through Christ. Through Christ, he extended mercy to us. I know this is deep for us to walk through, but now what I want us to do, is I want us to see a couple of continued, I'm gonna call them purpose statements, as we see what the purpose what God has in mind when he calls those to be elected. First of all, we need to see, as we've already briefly looked at, is that in his choosing, what we see is that it's specific. We have in Ephesians chapter 1 the words we and us use frequently. We've even seen already as a reminder in Romans 9 that Jacob and Esau are used. Israelites, those who are true faith are used to show that God is specific when he calls people. He Again, going back to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, article 4, says then that men, thus predestined and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite. God knows those who are his. The second thing we need to be reminded of is that our election is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why I'm calling these things back to your attention, because I know I briefly hit them over in Ephesians chapter 1, but I don't want you to be reminded and not to see that Christ is not an object of our salvation. I've heard that objection before, that if God knows who are those who are his, why do we need the gospel? What a horrible thing to say. Because it's, it's through the grace that God sent forth his Son, to die on the cross for your sin, for my sin. God is our mediator. Excuse me, Jesus is our mediator, but for God and man. And we see that in the doctrine of election. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Even again, going back to the canons of Dort, he has chosen in Christ to bring about our salvation. It is faith in Christ alone that our election is sure. John, Jesus says in John chapter six, verse 37 All that the Father gives me will will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The third thing is, we are elected to be holy. To be holy is to be set apart. To be blameless. We see that in Ephesians 1. We saw that even in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 through 30. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. Again, We see the canons of Dort. He decreed them to give true faith in him to justify him, sanctify them and having powerfully kept in them the fellowship of his son and finally glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy and praise. What a gift. What an absolute gift that God through the power of his spirit is working to sanctify us so that we can be transformed from one glory to another. Because remember, whether you realize it or not and whether you like it or not, you are being transformed in the image of Christ, preparing us for glory. And never forget that since he is doing this, this should also help you never doubt your salvation, by the way. Because if God preordained for you to come to faith, and he's gonna be working in you, justified, called, glorified you, know then, that Paul is right in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he, he who began a good work in you will bring it to, to the completion of the day of Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth. Five, it's for the advancement of the kingdom. This is what election does. It's for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, I know this question always comes about, why evangelize if God knows those who are elect? It's a question I've heard many, many times. But here's something you have to remember. We do not have the mind of God. For you to put yourself in that position to think I don't have to evangelize, that's sin. And repent of that. Because remember, remember what the end of Matthew chapter 28 says? It's called the Great Commission. It's there and there for a reason. It's not a great suggestion, it is a command from Christ to go about and to make disciples. And if you know the doctrine of election and you know this glorious truth that God has, this should put the fire in your belly to want to evangelize and go out and tell people about Christ. Because remember, when Paul lists spiritual qualifications, remember one of them is there are, there are preachers, there are pastors, there are pastors, but there are also evangelists out there. There's missionaries out there that are all across this world telling the people about the good news of the gospel. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote when he says, when people ask him why evangelize if God knows those who are his, he says this, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. But since he didn't, I must preach Whosoever will, and when whatsoever believes, I know that he is one of the elect. Ladies and gentlemen, God has used the power of the gospel, the means of preaching, declaring out of your mouth through the word of God to save sinners. Just the other day, I think I said this in a sermon not too long ago, I was sharing the gospel with somebody in Karen Village with Grant, and I was getting to the gospel, shared it to him. The guy wanted nothing to do with it. The reality is I can't coerce that man to believe. All you and I are charged to is to be faithful to the gospel and to preach it and declare it. Grant mentioned again Tommy Nelson, and I love one of his quotes. He says, I preach the gospel, and then I go home and have an ice cream. That's exactly what we do. And it's amazing to see the Spirit of God work in the hearts of people. I think about one of my good friends who came to faith later in his life, and I remember him telling me how he got to faith, and he said, actually, the man who shared the gospel with me, it actually took place a couple of months ago. But what you saw is the Spirit of God working in his heart for him to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he couldn't get out of his mind, he said. Couldn't get out of his mind. And so he jumped into the Gospel of Mark, read it, and now he is one of the brethren. Fourth, it is for the glory of God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse one, verse six. Ephesians chapter one, verse 12. In order that we might praise, be for the praise of his glory. And there's so much more we can say on the doctrine of election. But what we need to see Here's some other verses you can write down. 1 Corinthians chapter one, verses 26 to 28. For consider your calling, brothers, that many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful, not many of you noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring about things that are that are. Not sure if you realize, but you're weak like I am. I don't have noble birth like you, but yet God in his kindness and his mercy and his grace chose you, elected you. John chapter 10, verse 26 and 30. Jesus answered them, he said, as I told you, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I want you to go to one more passage in your Bible with me as we're closing our time. I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. One of my favorite verses on the doctrine of election. Listen, starting in verse one. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are inheriting to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Let me stop there. You see the hand of God already in all this? They didn't do anything. God did it. Then you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy with them. And you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters of their sons or taking their daughters of your sons. For they will turn away your sons from following me to serve the other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindred against you, that he would destroy you and quickly, but thus you shall deal with them and you shall break down their altars and dash them into pieces, pillars and chop down their ashram and, and burn their carved images with fire. Why? Why all that? Glad you asked. Verse six. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Let me stop there. There it is, crystal clear, the doctrine of election. God chose the Israelites to be a faithful people. In closing, again, the Westminster Confession says it best. This doctrine is a high mystery of predestination. It is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford a matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. I couldn't say any better than that. Thanks be to God for saving us from our sins, for sending Jesus Christ to bore the penalty for our sins. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a part of the elect, and I don't know all of you in here, And some of you know this may be the first time. But if you are, and you know that you're his, don't squander your life. To live a spirited and cheap grace life is not biblical when you look at it through the lens of the doctrine of election. You've been chosen before the foundation of the world. So therefore, make your life count because God formed you before you were even, before your mother was even around and your grandmother was even around. And there by his grace, put you in front of the gospel. And there you believed. When we approach this doctrine, we have to remember Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord your God, but the things that are revealed belong to us, our children, forever that we may do all of his words of his law. Doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine, and we have to approach it with grace, because grace was given to us in order to believe. So in closing, I'm gonna end with scripture. I'm gonna end with scripture. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, as Paul is closing out from chapter nine, verse 11, talking about nothing but the doctrine of election, in Israel, I think he ends it well. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let me pray and then we will close because we are right at the end time. So Jake, don't even worry about it. We're closed. I'm, I ran, ran late. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I am absolutely humbled in this hour to realize that before Patty and Raymond Jones were born, before they conceived a son, you knew me. Before my grandparents were even on this earth, you knew me. And Lord, all of us in this place tonight can echo the same words I just prayed to you. Lord, this is a mighty doctrine, but it's biblical because your word teaches it. So Lord, I pray tonight, as I pray this morning for our people, may our vision of God get bigger as we see your gracious hand of mercy. Extend to us the gospel and called in us and moved in us and gave us the ability to believe. Father, I also pray that you will help us not to forget that before the foundation of the world began, you saved us, which means our salvation is a gift from God itself. Lord, I pray for myself as a pastor. I pray for my people here in this room. Help us not to squander our salvation. Help us not to live in cheap grace, but to see out of your love and your merciful hand, you saved us. You are the one that changed our heart from stone to flesh. You are the one that gives us the ability to cast off the old man and put on the new. So Lord, help us to flee these things. As Paul tells Timothy, Flee youthful passions. And Father, help us to be a people awakened to a holy God. Corum Deo, Lord. Corndea. Deo. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us tonight. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.